Turn with me, please, this morning to Romans chapter 8 in your New Testament scriptures. Romans chapter 8. We'll read beginning at verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 8. I picked up some kind of cold at the end of the week, took a COVID test. It was negative, hence the reason I'm actually here. Uh, But since I have a cold, I'll skip shaking hands. Colds are annoying. You don't want me to share that with you, especially with you all. Many of you going back to school this week or other activities like that. So just waving. It's not personal. Love all of you so much. But I'll I'll skip shaking hands, which you would want me to do that. So Romans chapter 8. And let us hear God's word beginning at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, again, we just thank you for your word. And as we come here and worship, we give you our thanksgiving, our praise. And we have so much that we are thankful for. So receive that thanks and bless us now as we look at the word. We need you to teach us, to open our eyes, to shape, change our wills, to give us grace, encouragement, power to obey, to correct us where we're wrong and our thinking our actions, and to do these things because you are our teacher, and God, you are our Father, and Holy Spirit, you are the one who gives understanding. So bless us to that end, we pray, and be glorified in it, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In his memoir, Everything Sad is Untrue, author Daniel Nagiri asks, have you ever heard the question, can God create a mountain so big that he himself couldn't lift it. You've heard that before, haven't you? Obviously, the question is an attempt to put God in a corner. If he can't lift the mountain, he isn't all-powerful. And if he can't make the mountain, he isn't all-powerful. But at the end of the day, the question is somewhat silly because it imagines that God is like us, 
that he's bound by the rules of created things. I mean, after all, if you're God, you don't have to lift anything. And anything you make is still a thing. So you're sovereign over it no matter what. But here's another question that the author asks, and this one isn't as silly. Can God create a law so big that he himself has to obey it? Is there an idea so big that God doesn't remember anything before? And the answer to that question is yes. And the answer is love. 1 John 4.16 tells us God is love. And John 3.16 declares the best known verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son. And you say, well, that's not a rule God remembers. I know. We can tweak the wording of the question. Because God is love, love is a virtue that constrains us and not the other way around. But it only helps to make the point that as an attribute of God, love often comes to the forefront. When the Bible describes who God is and how he interacts with his world. What stance has he taken towards his creation and the people he has redeemed? It is one of love. And we should not be surprised then when we find that emphasis on love uniting the passage we are studying today. In verse 28, Paul begins by stating God works for the good of those who love him. In verse 35, he asks, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And in verse 39, he concludes, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how he concludes this chapter. But with that conclusion, he not only brings Romans 8 to a close, but all of Romans 5 through 8 which began with Paul promising us God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. With all that Paul has said about the mechanics of salvation, and they are wonderful, he reminds us that this whole program has been driven by love. The sovereign sacrificial, saving, and sustaining love of God. It's like when you come to the Christmas tree and there's a present under there, and as soon as you see the shape, you know what it is. When you look at salvation, the gift of salvation, the wrapping on it is love. And we know exactly what God does because he loves us. In Romans 8, as I've told you before, it's considered by some people one of the best chapters in the Bible. So at the high point of what may be a high point of the Bible, Paul zeroes in on God's love. And so as we come to these final verses in Romans 8, let's focus our attention there on the greatness of God's love for us. And the passage highlights four ways that God shows us this love. And the first is this, he calls us, to a secure salvation. Verse 28 reads, this is where Paul begins, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now I want to focus first on that phrase, who have been 
called. Because that's foundational to all of those verses. The Christian life begins with the effective call of God. God calls like he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And it results in our salvation. And God gives this call in accordance with his purpose. There's a purpose that governs how God calls. Well, what purpose is that? Verses 29 through 30 tell us. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God's loving purpose for you begins in eternity past. It continues through time. And it successfully culminates in eternity future. And let's look at some of the points along that map. Paul refers in verse 29 to those God foreknew. Now, The word for new, the way it's used in the Bible, it can mean to know something in advance. God knows something that will happen before it happens. In Reformed people, we we tend to downplay that aspect of the word. It is a possible meaning of the word. However, that meaning doesn't work here. Because Paul does not say that God foreknew something about us, but that God foreknew us. And that matches many other ways this word is used in the Bible. That God set his love on us in advance. And because God loved us in advance, he also predestined us. To be conformed to the image of his son. God loved you in advance. And so he marked you out in advance. And he chose you to become his adopted child. And the result of that, by the way, is now Christ is now the preeminent son. He's the preeminent son in a family that involves many sons and daughters. In a huge family, Christ is now the preeminent son because of God's purpose in salvation. Christ is glorified and we obtain immeasurable benefits. And Paul continues to list those benefits in verse 30. God loved you in advance. He marked you out in advance. Now in time, God called you. And when he called you and you responded with faith because of that call, he then justified you. And that's what the earlier chapters of Romans focused on. And lastly, Paul says, those he justified, he also glorified. Hey, now wait a minute. The verses last week told us we're still waiting on that glorification. We're still waiting for the creation to be brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Verse 21, yes we are. But as far as Paul is concerned, from God's perspective, it is as good as done. And that's why I'm saying that God calls us to a secure salvation. What God purposed in eternity past, 
He pursues throughout time and he accomplishes an eternity future. And he does it for a consistent group of people, those whom he foreknew. These he predestined, these he called, these he justified, these he glorified. It's been called a golden chain of salvation. And friends, he does this because he loves you. He foreknew you. He set his love on you in advance. Now, friends, isn't that the kind of secure love that all of us desire? How many of you have experienced in your life the pain of broken relationships? And maybe that was due to your fault. Maybe it was due to someone else's fault. When God enters into a relationship with you, it's secure. Which is why this passage concludes with the declaration, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he calls us to a secure salvation. By the way, if you have that secure love from God, you don't need to do anything to earn or get that secure love from anybody else. You can't get it from anybody else. And don't you ever throw away your standards or your morals or your sense of who you are just to get that from somebody else. You've got it from God. You don't need it from anybody else. So he calls you to that. And then two, he infuses our lives with meaning. So we have a secure foundation in place. But I want to stick in these verses even though it's another point. Look again at that opening statement in verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So in the previous section, what we looked at last week, Paul reminded us, we've not yet arrived at the new creation. The present creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. But we're looking forward to creation's liberation with joy. And the Holy Spirit helps us as we journey to that destination. The Holy Spirit groans as we groan. Well, according to these verses, not only does the Spirit help us in our groaning, but God is also working in those circumstances for our good. Hence Paul's declaration, in all Things Or despite all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Those groaning, aggravating, frustrating, tempting circumstances, those are actually means that God uses, that God designs to bring about good for those who love him. Now, what is the good here? Again, it's the purpose Paul unpacked. In verses 29 to 30, our predestination leading to our calling, leading to our conformity to the image of the Son, leading to our glorification. Because God has that purpose of bringing you from ruin to glory, he orchestrates the events of life so that they contribute to that outcome. That is the ultimate good God does for us. And he works in every circumstance to produce that good. Now, friends, what that means for you is that the events of your life have meaning. Nothing in life goes wasted. Everything that you need to put you on the path to salvation and sustain you on that path, God supplies There are things that happen to us and we fear uh, that's going to knock me off the path. That thing in my life, that's a threat to me. 
No, those are the groanings and the frustrations that are still present in creation. But God promises that even the things that don't look like helps, God works in those things for your good. So when you look back over the circumstances of your life, again, take comfort in this fact. Nothing in your life goes wasted. Again, maybe some of your circumstances are due to bad choices you made. I mean, we do that sometimes. We have to own it. I made a bad choice, and this happened. Or maybe some of your circumstances are due to choices you made, and it looked good when you made it. You thought, I'm making the right decision. But if you had a do-over, maybe you'd make a different choice. Maybe some of your circumstances are because of things people did to you. There are evil and groaning and frustration and sin in the world. I'm not downplaying those or excusing them. What I'm saying is over all of them, there is this hope that in them, God works for the good of his people, which means he infuses your life with meaning. So let's come to the third idea. He graciously supplies our every need. Picking up now with verse 31 as as Paul begins to build towards his conclusion with a series of questions. And the first question, this is really the umbrella question. This first question really includes all the rest. Verse 31 asks, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What conclusion should we draw from all this good news we've considered? Simply this, God is for us. And now no one can be against us. And for God to be for us, it simply means God is on our side. Friends, I wouldn't speak this way if the Bible didn't. But God has moved you to his side by saving you, and now he is on your side to defend you against all of his and our enemies. Now, how do we know? How do we know God would be for us and that he would remain for us? Verse 32 writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. We know that God is for us. We know that he loves us because he's given us his son. As Paul said back in chapter 5, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. God has given the greatest demonstration of his love when you were at your absolute worst. And so in light of that fact, Paul asks, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And maybe it sounds silly to think of God doing hard things, you know, like moving a mountain or making a mountain so big he can't lift it. Paul's logic here is, since God has done the hard thing, giving us Jesus when we were sinners, if he did the hard thing, We can depend on him to do the easy things, to give us all other things, especially what is needed to bring you to final glory. Because God loves you, he graciously supplies your every need. 
And Paul, by the way, identifies some of those specific needs. Verse 33 asks, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? You see, since God is for us, no one can be against us. But that doesn't mean that some will not try to be against you. Satan accuses believers. Your conscience may accuse you. Of course, outside of Christ, God's law would be against us. But now, in Christ, none of those charges can prevail. Because God justifies. Because of the life and death of Jesus Christ. And because of your faith in him, you are freed from the condemnation of the broken law. God has condemned sin in the flesh of his son, and Satan has no grounds on which he may stand to accuse you. Listen to these similar words from Isaiah 50, verses 8 through 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Now again, if the Bible didn't speak that way, I wouldn't dare to speak that way. Because in my merits, I can't speak that way. But we are connected to the Son. And we are freed from condemnation. And so now we speak in the words of Isaiah. Who will accuse them? I dare you to stand up and bring an accusation against one who is connected to the son, who is connected to the servant, who has already been condemned in my place and raised from the dead. He's been vindicated. And now I in him have been vindicated. And that's true now. And that will be true at the last judgment. So that lastly, verse 34 asks, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. A little repetition there, but Paul adds this new element. Jesus is also interceding for us. It's not just what happened then, right now. At the Father's right hand stands one, clothed in human flesh, and yet God in one person forever, pleading with the Father, not because the Father's unwilling, but just supplying the merits. Lord, Father, may this verdict for which I died, that they would be justified, may it be applied to them, both now and in the judgment to come. Friends, it's a secure package. It's not getting lost anywhere along the route. And so when we see, you you see now why we say God supplies graciously your every need. Whatever you need to get on the path, whatever you need to stay on the path to salvation, God supplies. And to turn it around from another angle, I think sometimes we look at things and we think, I need that, I gotta have that. If you need it, God will give it to you. And if he doesn't, then it's not for your good. Because all of those decisions are governed by the fact not that God loves you. No, excuse me, not that God is stingy, but that God loves you. 
If your children ask you for a fish, you don't give them a stone. How much more your heavenly Father gives good gifts to those who ask him. He loves you, and he will never stop loving you. Which brings me to the final idea, number four. He preserves us through every hardship. Verse 35 asks the final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, you see, as humans and even as Christians, hard times can make us wonder, does God love me? And if he does, why is this happening to me? Now, now from one angle, it is a silly question. And we definitely don't want to be like the Israelites, you know, God fed them and five seconds later they wondered, is God going to feed us again? Yeah, we, we want to avoid that. But the fact that we might ask this question, if God loves me, why is this happening to me? Here's the other extreme. We might be tempted to be dismissive of that and say, well, you shouldn't think that way. No Christian should ever ask that question. But this is something God's people have wrestled with for ages. And we know this because of the psalm Paul quotes in the next verse. Verse 36 reads, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, follow me here. That citation comes from Psalm 44, verse 22. And if you read the whole psalm, you will hear the author complaining that God no longer goes out with Israel's armies. God has abandoned them and left them to die. And where we might expect a confession of guilt, okay, God, you abandoned us because we sinned. We do find that in some Psalms. We do not find that here. In fact, the author protests his innocence. Listen to Psalm 44, verse 20. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God have discovered it? Since he knows the secrets of the heart, yet for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And the psalmist's point is, God, this is not one of those times when we've sinned against you. This is not one of those times where we hid our idolatry and you abandon us like Achan hiding the things in his tent. The psalmist says, we've been faithful to you. And yet you seem to be asleep. He goes on in the next verse to say, arouse yourself, wake up, God, and come to our aid. And so Paul utilizes this psalm to ask, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? Because despite all that God has done for us, there will still be times when we will wonder, what is God doing? And so Paul says, yes, God's people ask that question. Here's the answer in true gospel fashion, the reassurance of verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now notice, by the way, it's a little unsatisfying. Paul doesn't answer all the why questions. He just says, can anything separate you? No. Because if God gave you his son when you were a sinner, how will he not graciously supply everything for you? And he will work in all circumstances for your good. 
And he will bring you through the groanings of this life to glory and to the new creation. So if we suffer now, we will overwhelmingly conquer then. As the NLT puts it, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And so Paul concludes, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither heights nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't need to define all those items. Just notice the pattern. It's several pairs of extremes, which means that everything in between is concluded as well. So whether it's the most general situation, life or death, or spiritual concerns, angels or demons, time, present or future, or anything else in all creation, every kind of event, and everything in between, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So take heart, friends, in the security and the greatness of God's love. A love that rescues you. A love that preserves you. A love that transforms you. We bear the marks of God's Son now, which means that we are God's people, and this is the place where we show God's Son to others. It's a love that makes no mistakes with your life. It's a love that will not abandon you down the road. It's a love rooted in Christ and what he does. That is the greatness of God's love. Let's pray and give thanks together. Father in heaven, thank you that you loved us and sent your son to die for us, to pay for our sins. Thank you, Spirit of God, for calling us, for opening our eyes, that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. And Father, our prayer this morning for our church, for our individual lives, our prayer is that being rooted and established in love, you would give us power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.